Hey, this is Junior. Thanks for hitting play. You know, Jesus said that there are many people who consider themselves Christians, but aren't. That's a terrifying thought. Let's talk about it. In middle school, I don't know if you have like a similar story, but in middle school, I was sitting in class when I got this, uh, this girl folded note. You remember those folded notes, ladies, that you guys used to, used to fold, uh, that like folded up? I don't know how you folded notes like that. Like, is there like some sort of like secret origami girl class that I just kind of missed out on? Yeah, because I would get like the, these notes, you know, in class and then I'd write my reply or whatever and I couldn't figure out how to fold the stupid thing back up. But I got one of these notes from a girl, very rare occurrence, and inside the note, it said that she liked me. And, and then like the whole like, do you like me, circle yes or, or no. With my heart pounding, I circled yes, and then spent the whole rest of the class trying to refold the stupid thing. But after I sent it back, naturally, I thought, well, we must be in a relationship. I told you I liked you. That's like the first girl I ever told I liked. Until a couple weeks later, she introduced me to her new boyfriend. Totally let down and very surprised. I thought these notes were binding. Middle school love. That kind of thing ever happened to you? Like sometimes you misjudge a relationship. You ever think that? Like, oh, I thought we were like together, or I thought you were my friend. Or I thought I would be invited to that. Or I thought you'd have my back. And you realize, oh, maybe we're not as close as I thought. And that always hurts. That realization always hurts whenever you think those words. But wouldn't it be horrible if we misjudged our relationship with God? Thought we were good. Thought we were in a relationship. Thought we were close. But at the end of life, we find out that we weren't. There's a terrifying verse in Scripture, and you might have read it. It'll keep you up at night. Jesus said this. He said, On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. You knew about me, but you didn't really know me. You call me Lord, but I'm not your Lord. There's no relationship here. I think of it like the other night I was watching a documentary on... Jacques Cousteau, he's an explorer, he's a diver. Uh, this guy's work is so cool. Like He pushed the limits when it came to scuba diving uh, and what scuba diving is today. And I scuba dive, so I'm just like, I was glued the whole, the whole series. You know, I, I was inspired. Like Even his name is cool, Jacques. Like, I just like Jacques. But I don't know Jacques. Never met him. Like, I could tell you about him. I could tell you about his family. I could tell you about his career. I could tell you about his work that he did in scuba diving. I could tell you about his cool red hat and his pipe. But I don't know Jacques. In the same way, there's many people, this is what Jesus is saying, there's many people who consider themselves Christians. Maybe they even try to go to church or serve a bit or, or give or whatever, but at the end of the day, there's no relationship. They admire Jesus from a comfortable distance. That's why Jesus said, there's going to be many who come to me, and I'm going to say, I don't know you. You were a fan, but you weren't a follower. It's a terrifying verse that Jesus says, isn't it? It's kept me up at night. Maybe we should talk about it more. John chapter 6 is where we're at today. John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 26. We're going to hit a ton of verses today. Kind of skip around. Really encourage you to have the Bible in your hands. It's page 891 in the Bibles in the chairs. We also have notes 
And uh, you'll see in your notes that there's no points today. There's just questions. This is going to be a very different sermon than uh, we typically do uh, at the bridge. But this is one of those weekends where we just kind of hit pause and we go, okay, let's talk about something that we might be missing or let's kind of evaluate where we're all at. So this will be an interesting time that we have together. But I am excited for it. I'm going to pray and then we'll just jump right in. God, I thank you so much for your word. I ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate this text to us because we need that. But even more, we ask that the Holy Spirit really search our hearts during this time, convict us, make us uncomfortable. May we lean into that discomfort. And God, may you really reveal yourself to us today as we look at your word. And may we be honest with ourselves and even, I would say, fair in understanding and evaluating just where we're at with you. This is such an important conversation. And so, God, we really need you for this part. We, we know you will speak. I ask that we listen. I ask that we tune out all distractions and really zero us in on what you have for us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into John chapter 6, we find ourselves in a synagogue that we were in last week, if you hear with us last week, with the man with the withered hand. We're in the same synagogue. We'll actually be, uh, we'll talk about the synagogue even more next week as well. But this is the synagogue that we find ourselves in once again. It's a musty, dim stone room, packed, wall to wall. A line extends out the doorway and outside the outside courtyard. The harbor a block away is just slammed with boats from Tiberias, all of which sailed to come hear Jesus today. The docks outside have never been this full. The room inside has never been this packed. This is no place for claustrophobics. People are packed in here like sardines. A few men get up and they open the windows just to be able to breathe, get some fresh air, but it's soon blocked with heads poking through to hear what Jesus is going to say inside. And there in the southeastern corner of the room sits the headliner, Jesus. The room is packed with chatter. Everyone is wondering and speculating, what's he going to do today? What's he going to say? Not long ago, he healed a man in this room and started a big war between him and the religious leaders. Is this going to happen again? This last week, he fed thousands with a little Lunchable. Is he going to do something like that again in here? chatter everywhere, and with mayhem all around him, Jesus sits quietly in thought, just scanning the room. His fear is that these people in worship today are here to get. Ever since he fed 5,000, the crowd around him has grown. Is it for God or is it for free food? Ever since he healed the man in this room, this place has been busting at the seams. Is it to see God and experience God or is it to get something from God? His fear is that this packed room is packed with fans wanting miracles, food, a story to go home and tell their neighbors. So sitting there, he decides today he's going to shoot straight. Today he's going to lose the crowd. This place might be packed right now, but he is going to sift this room like wheat. And so he says in verse 26 of John chapter 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I'm not God to you. I'm a free food truck. I fed thousands yesterday. Are you here for more food? This is how Jesus starts his sermon. 
You kind of want to like get him a Snickers or something. Like, are you hangry here, Jesus? You're not yourself. Here's a better way to start a sermon, isn't there? Like, maybe finesse a little bit first. You know, Jesus, people made a long trip to get here today. Maybe say something like, hey, thanks for coming. Or you should start with a joke. Or you should start with like, you know, as the lens of Scripture zooms in. I heard that's like a really good way to start. I don't know, like give, give him something. Like this, this is so harsh. It doesn't seem like Jesus. Nonetheless, he continues in verse 27. He's going somewhere with this. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, he's referring to himself, God the Father has set his seal. He's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. You just reprimanded us for being here for food, and now you're telling us that you want to give us more food. Like, what, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus loved using play on words. He's an extremely creative teacher, and he's saying, he's saying, you're a fan of me for the food. I'm not interested in that, but I am interested in you following me for spiritual food. Stop busting it all week long to get physical food and start busting it all week long to get spiritual food. There's a few head scratches around the room, and so they ask in verse 28, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, all right, Jesus, you tell us to to uh, work for food that, not for food that spoils, but for spiritual food, spiritual life. So like, what do we do? How do we get that? How do we get this eternal food? It's an age-old question. I mean, churches and temples all around the world right now are filled with people asking this very question. It is keeping them up at night. What must we do to get spiritual food? What must we do to get eternal life? And there's many, 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 many different answers. I mean, you go to a Catholic church, Catholic answers the question with, uh, well, you need to do the sacraments, right? You got to check these things off and then you should be good. Or you have uh, Jehovah Witnesses answer it with uh, certain ordinances that you have to do. Or, or Mormons have say something similar, you know, this, this, and this, and then you should be good. Mosques answer this question with the five pillars of Islam. And then you got to be, your good has to outweigh your bad, and then you should be good. Buddhists will answer this question with, well, you got to reach like a certain stage of enlightenment to get that spiritual food, to get that eternal life. Many have taken this question and they'll leverage it for money. Give us money and then we'll, you'll be good. So it seems like everybody has a different answer. But the only answer that matters is the one who can actually give the spiritual food. And so here's Jesus' answer in verse 29. Jesus answered him. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Believe. Now, I want to unpack this word believe here because this verse is absolutely huge. It's the answer to the age-old question. But many, many look at this verse. I've talked to many who look at this verse and go, believe. It, it, it seriously can't be that easy. And so many misunderstand this. The word, in, the word for believe in, in verse 29 doesn't mean believe like in the existence of. You know, like someone who would believe in aliens or believe in the Loch Ness Monster, believe in, in unicorns or something. Like Jesus isn't saying you need to believe in the existence of God because even demons believe in God. In fact, you know that the first uh, few people to confess that Jesus is Lord in the Gospels were demon-possessed people? Demons knew the identity of Jesus, God. Like a lot of people today, I think, are walking around with this demon-level faith. We believe in the existence of God. Okay, well, that doesn't really get you much. There's more to what Jesus is saying here. See, the word for belief here is the word pistuo, which means to put your confidence in. To believe enough to take a step or to believe enough to act upon that belief. 
It's kind of like uh, Charles Blondin. I've talked about Charles Blondin before, but I'm a big fan of Charles Blondin. He, li- he lived in the 1800s, and besides having like the, the dopest goatee and sweetest pins in the world, wish I could wear these, he was, he was a famous uh, tightrope walker. He'd cross canyons and, and waterfalls. And there's a story of Charles Blondin he's crossing Niagara Falls, and the crowd, like a crowd came to watch him. You know, he's walking across, and everyone, everyone is like standing there with their eyes just like frozen on him. And he makes it to the other side, and everyone just starts cheering. Then he grabs a wheelbarrow, and he does it again. And the crowd just goes nuts. They go even louder. Charles gets to the other end. He goes, goes, how many of you believe I can walk across this rope with somebody in my wheelbarrow? Hands go up everywhere. Oh, yeah, we think you can do it. We think you can do it. Everyone's cheering loud. Do it, do it, do it. Until Charles said, who volunteers to get into the wheelbarrow? All the hands go down. Silence. It said the little boy stepped forward and put his hand down, and then a mom pushed, her, pushed, him behind, pushed him behind her. The crowd believed that Charles could do it, but putting their faith and confidence in him, okay, that, that's a different story. It's a different belief, if you will. See, Charles had fans loving him from afar, cheering him on from afar. They had the confidence that he could do it, but nobody had the confidence to actually follow him into that. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in John chapter 6. Belief, pistuo, is this idea of stepping out, not just believing in the existence of God. God exists. Okay, well, that's demon faith. No, there's action to it. There's a step. It's like I'm giving Jesus authority over my life, and now I'm following him. And that's not easy. Because I'll be the first to admit, there is stuff in God's word I wouldn't have put in here words that don't sit well with me because they're politically incorrect, they're hard to preach, they're probably going to get me in trouble one day. I said this one time while I was while preaching, and after one of the services, one of the guys came up upset with me afterwards. He goes, how can you say there's stuff in the Bible that you wouldn't put there? I was like, because I don't like the idea of hell. Like eternal suffering in a lake of fire. Like, Not a fan of that. I mean, if you are, okay, but like, I don't like that. Or gender roles. This isn't fun to preach in a feminist society. What this is about who you can have sex with. Okay, well, that's not as fun. And also, I don't like how Jesus tells us to treat our enemies because I got a much better method on how to treat my enemies. But it doesn't matter what I think about all that because I've stepped out, I've stepped into the wheelbarrow, I've given my authority over to Jesus. That, that all went to Jesus. I have to believe in this confidence to step out and submit, even if I dislike something or if I'm uncomfortable with something. See, Jesus isn't looking for existence belief. He's not looking for fans. He's looking for action belief, followers. Now, this doesn't mean that our salvation is based on works. Our salvation is fully in Jesus Christ and what Jesus did. But our belief in the cross is coupled with action. It's coupled with submission. That's why Jesus' little brother James wrote, faith without works is dead. True faith is going to have works. True faith is going to get you into the wheelbarrow, so to speak. This is what Jesus is getting at. Well, at this point, a few speak up. And in the text, they say, you know, well, our ancestors, they were fed out in the wilderness. They got bread from heaven. They called it manna. Like, is that what you're talking about? And then Jesus says his famous line in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. Again, not believe in the existence of. Pistuo shall never thirst. And this right here is what ticks off the room. Oh, it sounds really nice. Like grandma sold this on doilies. Really cute. I'm the bird of life. It's symbolic. It's vivid. It's, it's very poetic. But in reality, it's offensive. In the society, bread was everything. Is everything you did was to put bread on the table at home. It was the goal, bread. Bread gave life. Bread gave strength. Bread gave satisfaction. Jesus is saying here, I need to be all of that to you. I need to be your bread. I need to be your everything. I need to be your goal. I need to be your strength. I need to be the source of your life. I need to be the source of your satisfaction. I'm your bread. Don't just believe in the existence of me or admire me. I can't be put into a compartment of your life. I am your everything. I'm not into fans. I want followers. And he continues on. He says, but I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Again, we see that word pistuo here. Oh, you believe in my existence. I'm standing right in front of you. You admire me. It's why this place is packed, but you're not following me. I think at this point, Jesus is looking around the room thinking, how many of these faces will I one day look at again saying, I don't know you. A terribly awkward silence falls over the room. A few who sit outside, they walk off. They didn't come for this. And then the whispers start. Verse 42, you have it in your Bibles. Said they, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Hey, come on, we know Joe, his dad. And we've, we know his mom, Mary, we saw her pregnant actually, so we know he didn't fall down from the sky, come down from heaven like manna. He was born near animals. And he has the audacity to stand up in the worship service and say that he's God and needs to be like bread to us. Yet Jesus continues teaching through their whispers. Skip down to verse 66 though. I'm going to bring this to a head. Verse 66, it says, After this, after this conversation, after the sermon of Jesus, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The heads popping through the windows, they disappear. One family in the middle section just walks out, followed by another. Jesus is teaching as the room empties. People are shaking their heads, they're wagging their fingers, they're giving them dirty looks. Oh, an hour ago they were fighting to get in here, fighting for a seat. Now there's a bottleneck at the exit as each stand in line, whispering their nasty remark about the sermon. And eventually there's nobody to talk to. And Jesus stops. And he stares at an empty room. His 12 disciples sit along the side. A few disciples walk in after working crowd control. They're somewhat confused. This has not happened yet. Jesus just lost a slew of followers. Like None of them really know what to say. This is really awkward. And so Jesus breaks the silence, and he says in verse 67, you want to go away as well? I get it if you want to, because what I'm saying, maybe you didn't sign up for this, what I'm asking, what I'm requiring, certainly not easy. Most are going to leave, as you just saw. The road to the kingdom is narrow. This isn't for everybody. If you want to go with them, you can go. And I love Peter's response. I think it had to make Jesus tear up a little bit. It's beautiful, it is so simple, and it's Peter of all people. Peter looks at his teacher, 
his teacher who's taking all this heat now. Everyone's jumping off the Jesus bandwagon in town. Peter's friends and neighbors all hate him. You know Peter's going to go home and hear about Jesus in many negative ways. Yet Peter looks at Jesus and says, Lord, who am I going to go to? You're the only option. Well, go back to fishing? Spend my, spend my life putting bread on the table? Then what? He says, you have the words that give eternal life. You have this spiritual food. I believe that. You're everything. I'm not going to leave everything. I love that. I mean, what, what a friend. What a follower. Is that you? I think in this text, Jesus is just calling us to the mat, and he's asking us, are you a fan or are you a follower? For you. Growing up, I went to a youth group. Loved my youth group. Um, most of the kids in my youth group were from non-Christian backgrounds and um, came to youth group and found community and uh, seemed like they loved Jesus. We did mission trips together and conferences and we did service projects. I still keep in touch with my youth leaders from, from back in high school and middle school. I mean, it was just it was a huge time for me. It's about 25 of us, give or take. Out of that 25 that I did youth group with, about five are following Jesus today. Five. Now, they all loved youth group. They loved the trips. They loved the conferences. They loved the community that we had. Uh, it was fun. And then something happened. I, you know, I don't know. It just College came, dating, got jobs. And somewhere along the way, 80% of them, 20 of them said, following Jesus just isn't worth it. I, I want to date my way. I don't want to date his way. I want to do my college days my way. I don't want to do them his way. I want to party my way. I don't want to party his way. I want the notches on my bedpost. And, and they walked out. They said, you know, it's just not worth it at this point. And, and it kills me at the same time. I don't judge him like I understand. I get it. The church can have a revolving door, and, and we can see it here because every church has it. People come in. They like Jesus. They admire Jesus. But then they find out that Jesus disagrees with their opinion or Jesus disagrees with their politic. They find out that Jesus doesn't really care about being politically correct and that Jesus calls us to hold some unpopular opinions and following Jesus is going to invite criticism. You're going to get called a bigot. It's just what it is now today. Or you name it, you get, you get called the names. And they find out that Jesus keeps them from doing certain things. And after a while to them, it's just, it's not worth it. And they leave. Like the people who left here. And that's why I want, that's why this text is so important to us right now is Jesus calls us to the mat here and says, I don't want that to be you, so can I call you to the mat and just ask you, are you a fan or are you a follower? In a way, I think Jesus looks at us like he looked at his 12 and said, do you want to go too? Do you want to go too? And initially we look at this question and we think, no, I don't. I'm with Peter. But come on, there's those times. You just kind of wonder. You're dating. That person's really into you. You can't believe that they're into you and you're really into them. But they show no desire for Jesus. And deep down, you know you shouldn't be with them, but it's just, it's just too much fun. And it's like Jesus looks at you and says, You want to go too? I don't know. 
Or you're at work, and maybe you're the only Jesus follower at work, and you know that Jesus calls you to be transparent, and Jesus calls you to be honest, and Jesus calls you to talk about your faith, and Jesus calls you to be ethical, and Jesus calls you to submit to that terrible boss, and it's just costing you because the competition isn't doing any of that. And it feels like the competition is getting ahead by cutting all the corners that you can't cut because you're a follower of Jesus, and you find yourself driving home at night just kind of thinking, man, this following Jesus thing isn't really helping me at all. It's just hurting me. I think in that moment, like Jesus says to the 12, it's like he says to you, are you going to leave too? I don't know, Jesus. I kind of want to. Or you're in college, and so far the biggest thing you've learned in college is that finding Christian friends isn't as easy as you thought it would be. And you've become that person on campus who says no to going out to the parties, and you're just kind of tired of it, and you're sick of sitting in your dorm room on a Friday night. It's like Jesus says to the 12, it's like he says to you, you want to go too? I don't know, Jesus, I'm kind of thinking about it. See, in this text, the crowd left the building. And there Jesus sat quietly watching people file out and back up their streets and around the corner and into their homes. Big decisions were made that day, eternal decisions were made that day. Oh, they knew who Jesus was. They believed in the existence of God. It's why they gathered there for worship. They even liked Jesus. But following is a whole other story. And again, it begs the question, where do we find ourselves in this text? Who are you in this text? Are you a fan or are you a follower? And don't rush your answer to this question. In fact, to help us answer this question, I have a few qualifying questions that help you kind of determine where you're at. You know, again, usually we get into God's Word, we have got like three principles, three points, you know, go home, and we're, we got these three points we're going to take into our week. Instead, you know, we're just hitting pause to make sure that we as a church wouldn't empty out if Jesus preached this sermon. Again, like in many ways, Western culture is just flooded with Jesus fans. I think a lot of churches are just stadiums full of fans. But this world needs Jesus followers. And so as a church, we're just asking ourselves, okay, where are we at? Would our church empty? I don't think so. I, I don't because I know you. But at the same time, we have to ask ourselves this. Am I a fan or am I a follower? And the first qualifying question to really ask ourselves is, have I committed to following Jesus? Have you actually committed to it? Because I, I find too many people who say, you know, well, I've always kind of been a Christian. I sat with a guy last night after our, our men's night. And I just ask him where he's at with Jesus. And he's like, well, I've just kind of always been a, a Christian. And, uh, and that's just impossible. There has to be a moment in time or a season in your life where you go from lost to found. Where you go from death to life. Where you turn from your way to God's way. We call that repentance. Following God isn't something you're born into. Or you, you know, I got my Christianity from my parents. No, God doesn't have grandkids. Have you made the conscious decision, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. And have you shown that decision through baptism? Have you been baptized in the community of faith? Have you done the first thing that Jesus asks you to do once you decide to follow him? Or is the idea of Jesus just kind of something you admire, but you haven't yet committed to it? Second question to ask yourself is, does following Jesus cost you anything? Has it cost you anything? Jesus said in Luke 14, he said, you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything. Now, he's not saying you need to take a vow of poverty and you can't enjoy nice things. He's not preaching a poverty gospel. What he's saying is, is you have to be willing to give up anything and everything. And you might not be called to give up everything, but there should be something. 
Following Jesus might cost you relationship. Following Jesus might cost you humility to confess and get accountability. Following Jesus might cost you a friendship. just can't go out with them anymore. They just take me away from Jesus. Following Jesus might cost you a way of life. It might cost you time. It might cost you resources. It might cost you pleasures. It might cost you an image. It might cost you opinions. Following Jesus will cost you. Think of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Was a, he's a German pastor and author. This guy is so cool. Uh, far cooler than Jacques. This guy tried to kill Hitler. You remember that story in uh, World War II when Hitler almost died with you know, the briefcase and the explosion? Uh, Dietrich was part of that planning. Eventually he was caught and he was t- sent to a concentration camp and hung in the concentration camp. He loved Jesus and paid a lot for following Jesus. But he wrote this. He wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come die. Well, thanks, Dietrich. It's really depressing, but it's really true. Following Jesus means a life of sacrifice, constantly dying to your own desires, dying to your flesh, dying to your opinions, dying to your agendas. It's constantly putting yourself to death day in and day out so that you look more and more like Jesus Christ, who you follow. And that always comes with cost. And so if we think back to our life, we go, man, there's, I've never really had to give up anything. I've never... Following Jesus doesn't cost me anything. I think that's a red flag. Okay, well, am I actually following him because following Jesus bids me to come die? Third question to ask yourself is, are there any areas of your life where Jesus isn't welcome? Are there any areas of your life where just it's not welcome? It's kind of like when you buy a house or you rent an apartment. The day you sign those papers, you remember this, the day you sign those papers, you know, you get all the keys. You get like the front door key and you get the garage key and you get the gate key and you get a, a key to the shed, key to the mailbox. Like you're the new owner and you get all the keys. Fans of Jesus don't give Jesus all the keys to their life. You know, Jesus, there's parts of my life I, I just would rather you not. Bedroom, I don't want you in my sex life. I don't want you in my friendship life, uh, my going out life. Uh, also, I don't want you in my politic or my opinions. Uh, I'd rather have you on the weekends, you know, um, with the family and when it kind of works out. So you can have these keys, but I'm going to keep these keys. And Jesus would say, okay, well then, let's just get something straight here Then I'm not Lord because the owner, the Lord, gets all the keys. I want them all, all or nothing. Fans give Jesus a couple of keys and say, hey, just go make some changes. You know, as long as I'm good with them, you know, make some changes. Spruce up my life. Upgrade my life. I'd like that. I could use that. You know, make my life more fulfilling. Oh, but don't go in that door. That's, that's uh, my key. That's my part of my life. I'm the Lord there. I don't want you in there. Whereas a follower says, you got everything. You got everything. I'm yours. I'm not perfect, and I'm not going to be perfect, but turn my life upside down. And do what you want. I'm an open book to you. It's whatever you want. So going back to the original question, are you a fan or are you a follower? There Jesus sat in that empty synagogue. Crowd long gone. He looks over at his disciples. You going to? Peter says that beautiful line to who? Where are we going to go? You're the way. Not going anywhere. And you think about those disciples sitting there that day. The ones that stayed, they really paid for it. Peter sitting there who answered this. He would eventually be crucified upside down. Legend has it after watching his wife be crucified. The last words he spoke to his wife was, just remember Jesus, honey. 
and then he was put up on a cross upside down. Next to Peter is John. John was boiled in oil. A couple of them are beheaded. All of them die poor. They're slaughtered. Each of those men that stayed in the room paid dearly for following Jesus. And I know, I know, this is the weirdest call to the gospel you've ever heard. But this is Jesus' point. Not interested in admirers. Not interested in more fans. i got enough of those. I want followers. Not perfection. I want followers. Imperfect people who are surrendered, who get knocked down but get back up, who are surrendered and ready to sacrifice. See, the kingdom of God is not populated with fans. It's inhabited by followers. This is the most important thing we could ever talk about. We're talking about eternity. And I'll be candid with you. I mean, I, this was a struggle for me going into this weekend. Like, I was just racking my brain thinking, you know, if I, man, if I could just present the gospel like just right, Maybe some of you, you know, who've been on the fence about this whole Jesus thing, maybe you'll like finally get it or maybe you'll finally commit. You know, if I could just say things the perfect way, some of you fans will become followers. But then I got to thinking, man, that's not what Jesus did. So I stand up here and sugarcoat something Jesus didn't sugarcoat. Like in this passage, Jesus gets up and says, okay, here's the truth. Following me is going to cost you. Following me is going to hurt you. Following me is going to be really difficult. I mean, this whole chapter, you look at this whole chapter, there's no sales pitch. Jesus just lays it all out, and most leave, and decisions were made, and eternities were chosen. And this story was recorded to bring us to the same decision. Okay, where you're at? Where you at? Jesus calls you to the mat right now. I bid you to come die. Take up your cross. Follow me into the pain. It's worth it. But it's going to hurt. Is that you? Are you a fan? Or are you a follower? Are you a fan? Are you comfortable? Are you enjoying the perks? Are you enjoying the community? Enjoying the feels? Enjoying the music? All of that is great. You know, the label of the Christian. But never committing. Never paying a price. And keeping Jesus out of certain areas of your life. Are you a fan or are you a follower? Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.